Father in heaven, uh, thank you for these people. Lord, so good to see these folks. And so good to gather around your word. And Lord, uh, hear uh, the truth, the truth that you love us. And um, help us believe it more deeply uh, because of looking at your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, I know I talked about The Chosen. Uh, it was one series we've looked at in my house the last several months, but maybe uh, another series has come across your screen as it has mine called Ted Lasso. We had any Ted Lassoers uh, in, in the house. Um, I've been, I got hooked on it. I, Jen and I zoomed through it pretty quickly, and maybe you have too. If you haven't, it's worth a try. And uh, the main character, Ted Lasso, is a, a football coach turned soccer coach, and he's about the most likable character imaginable. And on the show, he's able to turn his biggest skeptics into his biggest fan. And it's all because he's charming, and he's charming in this folksy kind of way. And then midway through the show, he starts having panic attacks. He starts having these unexpected, angry outbursts. And we found out why. We find out when he tells the team's therapist that when he was 16, his father died by suicide, leaving him and his mother alone. This was a secret. And he finally told somebody. And like many victims of childhood trauma, Ted Lasso seems to have ignored his wound by being consumed with others' well-being, making him this folksy charmer. Yet I think something deeper has taken root in Ted Lasso than his lack of self-awareness. I think what's going on with Ted Lasso is that he has this deep sense of shame. I think what he thinks is I must not be valued because my father didn't think I was worth living for. And that's what shame does. Shame says something's wrong with me and others can see it. Now some shame is real. Some shame is imagined. It's imagined when we feel guilty and we actually aren't. That's Ted Lasso. It's not his fault his dad committed suicide. But he experiences shame because of his perception of what he thought his father thought of him. And for many of us, we know this species of shame. But the other kind of shame isn't imagined, it's real, it's actual. This kind of shame comes from actually being guilty. It comes when we see that we are objectively broken. When we see that there's something is really wrong with us and we are in need of healing. And here's the thing about shame, whether it's perceived or real. What it wants to do is it wants to make you go into hiding. It wants to make you keep secrets. For instance, you think, man, I just really don't want people to know how much mental real estate I give to thinking about how I might please my parents. You don't want anybody to know how you frivolously covet other people's body types, career success, kids' cuteness, or home decor as you scroll through the IG. You don't want anybody to know your internet history from this past week, this past month, this past year, and certainly not your whole life. See, we all have secrets, and we have secrets because of our shame. And it says, Alcoholics Anonymous says, we are only as sick as the secrets we keep. 
And let me tell you, shame is committed to keeping you sick. And shame is committed to keeping you alone. So shame, whether it's derived from actual or imagined sin, it's going to leave you isolated and it's going to leave you without friends. But here's the good news. Jesus pushes through your shame to make sure that you get well. Jesus pushes through your shame to make sure that you have a friend in him because he hates to see you isolated. We see this whole dynamic play out in our text today, Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. Let's read it together. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything else, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. So here we have it. Jesus has made some friends. They're tax collectors. And he joins them for a party. And some religious onlookers are frowning on this matter, not because Jesus is partying, but much more because of who he is partying with. And Jesus' companions and other people's opinions of his companions are a theme in Luke. Let me give you some examples. Luke 7.34. Jesus quotes his haters and he says, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus isn't actually a glutton. He's not actually a drunkard. But people think he is because of the company he keeps. And what the religious want to do is they want to quarantine themselves from people like tax collectors and sinners and drunkards and gluttons because they're afraid it'll be seen that they're hanging out with them just endorses their behavior. Luke 7, 37, just a few verses later, Jesus is with, I quote, a woman of the city, a sinner. We all know what that means. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is getting ready to tell a whole bunch of parables about things that were lost and then get found. But before he starts telling these parables, it tells us who he's telling these parables to. And he's telling these parables to the religious elite who grumble at Jesus as they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke 19, you get the story of the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. And guess what happened when Jesus found him? Went to his house and then ate with him. Well, the religious throw shade at Jesus because he hung out with the chief tax collector. So here you have it over and over and over again in the book of Luke. Religious people stay away from sinners while Jesus wants to identify with them so closely that he eats with them every chance he gets. Jesus enjoys spending time with them. They feel welcome and comfortable around him. They're at ease in his presence. Others might hold sinners at arm's length, but Jesus pulls them in. 
And this whole business of God being friends with sinners, you might think it's just something new for God and Jesus, but it actually isn't. I know it's easy to think of God in the Old Testament as being this king, and the only kind of relationships he has with his people is that that a king has with his subjects. But here are a few instances that break up this common caricature of the God of the Old Testament. Here's how he's friends with people. Think about Abraham. He's called a friend of God in three places. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, Isaiah 41, verse 8, and James 2, 23. Abraham, friend of God. Moses, Exodus 33, says that the Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. David, in Psalm 25, 14, writes, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So there you have it. You got Abraham, you got Moses, and you got David. And all three of these guys have checkered paths. I know they're three of the most famous people in all of the Bible. They have checkered paths. You know this. Abraham doesn't trust God for his son to come from his old wife, Sarah. So what does he do to go about fulfilling God's promise for him? He sleeps with his maidservant, Hagar, and gets her pregnant. He's an adulterer. Moses is a murderer. In a state of rage, he kills an Egyptian soldier. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He schemes to kill Bathsheba's husband. And then he's a really crummy father. So all three of these guys are sinners, and they're flagrant ones at that. Yet God sought friendship with them. He knows that they are ashamed and therefore lonely. And he wants to heal their and our shame with his companionship. But there's a requirement for this companionship. You see it in verses 31 and 32, where Jesus states the purpose of his mission. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus is looking for sick people. He's looking for sinners. And of course, everyone is a sinner. The religious class, they know this on a general level. But what Jesus is looking for is people who know they're sinners on a particular level level. Think about who Jesus has made friends with. Tax collectors. One thing you don't want to do with a tax collector is convince them that they're greedy. They already know it. Think about adulterers, prostitutes. They know that they're sinners and they're a particular kind of sinner. Jesus hasn't convinced them of that either. And as the great physician, what Jesus wants to do is to cure their illness. And he wants to cure their illness through their repentance. So if you want to be friends with Jesus, brother and sister, this morning, you have to repent. You have to look at yourself honestly, something the Pharisees were unwilling to do in Luke chapter 5. They were not prepared to be treated for something that they did not recognize as diseased. 
So if you can't say I'm sick, if you can't say I need help, if you cannot say I cannot help myself, all things you have to do in order to go to the doctor, then the great physician, Jesus, will not treat you and you will not be his friend. So here's a problem. Neither me nor you want to repent. It doesn't come natural to us. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British preacher from this past century, what he says about repentance. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we're sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. And here's our conception of God. He's distant. That he doesn't want to be our friend. That he's tired of us. But what Luke 5 tells us is that our sin draws us to Jesus. Our sin draws Jesus to us. Let's let that sink in. Our sin draws Jesus to us. In fact, he's so drawn to our sin that he came and he lived a life of suffering. Think about it. He was born in a cattle stall to poor people. His parents fled to a foreign country to hide from Herod who wanted to kill him. He grew up in an obscurity with no benefits of being royalty. He was betrayed by his colleagues, ridiculed by his opponents, died the death of, the, of a criminal, bore the wrath of God on our behalf, even though he had no sin. Why? Because your sin got him out of heaven all to be your friend. Sounds scandalous, doesn't it? I did a word search of friend in the Bible, and I found a place I didn't expect to find it. It was in Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. It's when Jesus is talking to Judas, his betrayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what Jesus says to Judas. Friend, do what you came to do. Can you imagine? Jesus called Judas his friend. And if Jesus can call Judas his friend, he can call you his friend too. So if you think you've blown it, you haven't blown it as bad as Judas. And Jesus would have taken Judas back in a heartbeat, but Judas never repented. So will you come to the great physician today? Will you bring what you've been hiding into the light? Will you bring what you're ashamed of to be known? Maybe it's some pattern of greed. Maybe it's something regarding your sexuality. Well, Jesus can handle whatever you bring him. His heart's not cool towards you. Your needs for companionship will never overwhelm him. 
He will walk with you every moment. His friendship with you is constant. Brother and sister, when we experience the friendship of Jesus in this way, then we begin to interact with one another very differently. See, now we have our needs met by Jesus. And what that does is it allows us to move towards one another with love instead of a need for others to be our friend. In fact, we can begin to take on the same criteria for friendship as Jesus does. You begin to look for people to be your friend who are repentant. People are ready to receive forgiveness from Jesus, the same forgiveness that you have experienced. You begin to look for people who are willing to be honest about their sin sickness and their need for Jesus to heal them. And when Jesus does forgive them and he does heal them, then you have a real bond with one another. You now can love one another instead of exist in a superficial relationship because you know the unique ways each of you have sinned and the unique ways in which you each have been forgiven. But this is risky, risky, risky business. Even if you draw comfort and strength from the friendship of Jesus, this is still risky. It's risky because it requires vulnerability on a soul level which opens us up to the possibility of getting hurt. You let someone else know your tender place, and that's scary. It's scary to be vulnerable. One of the great essays on friendship is found in a book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. And on his chapter on friendship, here's what he says about vulnerability. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Put it in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, and it'll change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, what the repentant sinner knows before he or she makes friends is that it's possible to be vulnerable while also being loved. The repentant sinner has done that with Jesus and has found friendship with Jesus. So now he or she knows that if we are to get vulnerable with another person, a person who has experienced the same grace we have, that we can be accepted here too. See, a repentant sinner knows what it's like to be sick and lost. They're empathetic towards fellow sinners. And it's that kind of empathy, that kind of humility. That's the soil where real friendships are cultivated. See, Levi, in Luke chapter 5, he's made this realization. He's seen Jesus push through his shame. He's seen Jesus push through his isolation. And now he wants to offer the friendship of Jesus to his friends. So he throws a party. And in my redeemed imagination, what I see is that if you were to pull these other friends who are at this party with Jesus and ask them what that night was like, 
I think they'd say two things. I think they would say, Jesus pushed through my shame. Everybody else thought I was this kind of person. And Jesus loved me. I think the second thing they'd say is, we thought we were friends before we knew Jesus, but now we really are. I hope that's true for our church. That we would know what it's like for Jesus to push through our shame. And we would know what real friendship's like with one another because we've been seen and loved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're sinners. We need to encounter you. Lord, I pray that thing that's in us naturally because of sin, that doesn't lead to repentance, that we are all on very good terms with ourselves. Lord, I pray we would be a people of humility who are ready to repent. We're not just blaming everybody else for the hurt we've experienced, but we're to take responsibility for it for ourselves. Lord, I, I pray for those in here who have been keeping secrets, uh, Lord, that we would see them lose their power as they come into the light. Lord, deal with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.